Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Jen Alandi Trahan will read a new short story, Timmy Lincecum, You Magnificent Bastard. Jen Alandi Trahan was born in Houston, Texas, and raised in Vallejo, California. She holds a BA from the University of California, Irvine, as well as an MFA and an MA from McNeese State University. Though Jen has lived in 11 cities across the country, her heart belongs to the San Francisco Giants, the Golden State Warriors, the New Orleans Saints, Seaside Donuts, Cameron Parish, Glenn, Dalton, Jean Grey, Tegan, and Keanu Reeves. She is at work on a collection of linked short stories and a novel, and she is currently a Jones lecturer in the creative writing program here at Stanford. As a note, our story in this episode contains some adult language. Timmy Lincecum, you magnificent bastard. I meet Bomber at Buffalo Wild Wings the same night Timmy pitches his first career no-hitter and I wish my brother could be here to see it. Not me talking to Bomber for the first time. I'm ashamed my brother had to watch me cycle through so many different men, starting with Joe Dill, an outfielder who gave me his MVP medal in the ninth grade. But the guys on the large screen TV in front of me, Scutaro, Belt, Bumgarner, all these grown men rushing the pitcher's mound and jumping up and down like little boys around Timmy. Timmy, the pothead, Timmy, a two-time Cy Young winner. Timmy, who looks so intense before each pitch, like he's going to cry. Timmy, who could be a grown-up version of Dazed and Confused, Mitch Kramer. Timmy, who looks like he could be related to me. You know his mom's Filipino, I tell Max, the bartender, a New York Giants fan from Orlando. My Giants are slumping through a shit season, but I'm a regular all the same, though I stopped drinking during games and just started ordering boneless wings at the bar for three reasons. One, it's a 15-mile drive back to my single-wide in Grand Lake, mainly on two-lane highways, and I never remember the drive home. Two, I send incoherent texts to exes. Three, I sit in the bathtub with a sledgehammer and keep picturing what my face would look like if I took it to my own head. You always got to mention when someone's Filipino, Max says. It's true. Last week we were talking about the Heat clinching the championship, and I mentioned that the Heat's head coach, Eric Spolstra, was half Filipino. That's because most Filipinos join the military, I explain, or deliver mail or get delivered because they're mail-order brides, or they take care of other people's kids. One of my best friends in high school was Filipino, Max says, and his mom was a nurse. Yeah, that's typical too, I said. But white people, y'all got so many people, so many reasons to think you're important, the top of the food chain. Doctors, all these presidents, all of Hollywood, 
all these white shows now and back in the day. Beverly Hills, 90210, Full House, Step by Step, Silver Spoons, Out of This World. You know how amazing it would have been for little ass me to see a brown girl put the tips of her index fingers together and fucking freeze time? Wasn't she half alien? That's not the point, I say. Okay, the point is, Max says, I'd freeze time. Go to all the banks, boom. Goodbye, Buffalo Wild Wings. Freezing time is definitely a power I'd want. My dead brother, when he was my alive brother, wanted powers. When we were kids, we'd walk to the JFK library after school and pull Greek mythology books off the shelves. They were colorful and designed for dreams of children. My brother wanted a silver bow and arrow like Apollo's and a four-horse chariot to pull him across the sky. He wanted crazy strength like Ares. One Halloween, he cut a trident out of cardboard boxes to be Poseidon. Most times, my brother wanted to be Zeus. I just want to be Timmy right now, I say, motioning to the TV. I'm smiling a stupid smile. I'm full of shitty wings. Max still hasn't brought out my cider ranch. And maybe someone might jack the kayak I just bought on clearance from Academy because it's sitting in the bed of my landlord's pickup in the same huge parking lot as a Marshalls, Target, and Bed Bath & Beyond. But nothing matters. I can't explain that to someone who saw most of that game and still doesn't have a soft spot for Timmy. There's another pitcher I liked watching, Fear the Beard, that guy. He played ball for LSU. And that's the first thing Bomber says to me. Didn't even notice him listening, and there's no reason to think I'll know Bomber for longer than one shiner, because that's what this bar is good for. Beer-long conversations, game-long friendships, easy goodbyes. Bomber tells me he got an engineering scholarship to go to LSU, but then Rita hit, and he dropped out. His childhood home gone, just like that. Everyone knows about Katrina, he says, but no one knows about Rita. And I admit that I didn't know that Rita did more damage than Katrina, that I didn't know much about this part of the country, really. And when he starts telling me that the only things that survived the storm, the storm, he calls it, were phone books, I'm wondering what he would look like, fucking me, and I find out soon enough. He keeps his eyes on me the whole time, and I tell him not to stop, and I try to be quiet because I figure his roommates are home. They're my brothers, he says. But in the morning, I discover that Deuce and Red aren't really his brothers. They've just known him since Cameron Elementary. And I decide not to tell any of them about my brother. I tell them about my landlord instead. And Deuce goes, Miss Patty Gaspard's your landlord? And explains that she owns Gaspard's off Gulf Highway. Got it in the divorce. Got everything in the divorce. It makes sense to me. I tell them how I see her riding down the road in a golf cart. Blasting Bruce Springsteen from a boombox, not a care in the world. She lets me drive her extra pickup and lets me borrow her ride-on mower so I can cut the grass around my trailer. Grass that grows back thick and high after just a week in the summer. And it isn't long before Bomber hitches a trailer to his pickup so he can bring his own ride-on down to help me cut. Jesus, he says, hands on his hips, squinting at the pond out back and the land all around us. Even cutting all this by your lonesome? And I tell him that I didn't mind, that it keeps 300 bucks knocked off my rent and gives me something to do. We're sweaty by the time we're done. With the two of us cutting grass, it takes three hours. And the air conditioning's busted, so we get in the bathtub. 
bits of grass stuck to our legs and arms. Bomber asks what the sledgehammer's for. I tell him about the snake that came up the drain once, a true story, and how I need to keep the sledgehammer over the drain for peace of mind. I tell him about the frog I found in the toilet and the armadillos that scamper away from my headlights when I pull the pickup into the grass at night. Somewhere we read that sprinkling cayenne pepper down armadillo holes gets them to leave, but it doesn't work, and a part of me is glad. Bomber says he can put up a chain-link fence so I can have a backyard, and he does. Deuce and red help, and I think about the flat land around us. It's enough green for five baseball fields, maybe six. I start propping my kayak up against the fence after I take it out on the pond, and Bomber makes fun of me for getting a kayak to paddle in circles in my own yard. I wonder how the pond got here, I say out loud one afternoon, and he looks like he's trying not to laugh. That hill the trailer is on, he goes. Yeah, I say. That's how the pond got there, he says, and it's news to me that if you just keep digging somewhere, you'll find water. Three months later, Deuce and Red tell me they thought I was a hooker at first. I get it. I'm the only 20s-ish brown girl in Cajun country, and the sign that says Oriental Massage on a mobile office trailer across the street from Prion Lake Mall isn't doing me any favors. So I laugh for three reasons. One, because we're day drunk and now it's dark in the parking lot at Frosty Factory, and we're holding daiquiris from the drive-thru thumbs of masking tape over each of our plastic lids. Deuce and his Pirate's Punch, Red with an Eddie's Special, me with a Bayou Kahlua, and everything's making us laugh. Two, because I know Deuce and Red aren't being hater nation. Even though it's only been three months, I've seen Bomber every single day, and, as such, have transformed into their fourth roommate. The fourth unofficial man Deuce and Red want to shoot the shit with, even when Bomber's away working at a plant in Texas City. Three, because I'm strangely flattered. When I think of hookers, I don't think of the skeletal junkies missing teeth in those drug documentaries on Vice. I think of porn stars who win AVN awards. How could you think I was a hooker, I ask, sitting on the open tailgate of Deuce's pickup. I was wearing a fucking giant's cap. You could have been incognito, Red insists. You think hookers have some kind of uniform? I bet you right now, out there in the world, there's at least a hundred, no, 200 hookers out there wearing baseball caps. I hope Dodgers caps are getting jizzed on right this minute, I say. I don't get the deal with baseball, Deuce says, lighting a cigarette. That shit is fucking boring. Deuce and Red are actually brothers and diehard LSU football fans. They both work outside and turn browner than me. We've held our bare arms next to each other's to compare. They're both over six feet tall, have green eyes, and, from far away, look alike. I've still not told them that I have a brother, because I used to have one, and used to doesn't count. Also, no one wants to hear about a dead brother, Especially not about a dead brother who made 57 phone calls one night and then crawled into the back seat of his car with Lysol toilet bowl cleaner, pesticides, and a bucket. Even though we taped a paper sign to the windshield that said, Toxic, stay away, written in handwriting that hasn't changed since Mrs. Evangelista's third grade class, this handwriting that's like kids' chicken scratch carved into my fucking ribs, 
Nobody in his neighborhood reported the car for six days. No one wants to hear about that. Least of all Deuce and Red, right now. Total buzzkill. It's about the count, I tell them. It's like hitter versus pitcher. There are nine dudes out on the field, but the drama comes from the battle between two. Especially when hitters get on base, but still give it up to the pitcher. Like Timmy Lincecum. Back when Hunter Pence played for the Astros, he was quoted as saying that Timmy's got some of the nastiest stuff he's ever seen. I can throw a baseball, Deuce says. Yeah, I go. But can you throw one that goes like 97 miles per hour? What's that pitcher's last name? Red asks. Lindsay Cumrag. Lincecum, I say, taking my phone out to pull up a YouTube clip of Timmy's no-hitter. You gotta watch this. This is what went down right before I met Bomber. Deuce leans back on the tailgate by my left shoulder, and Red gets on my right, and they both indulge me. In the first inning, Tanaka seals an out in left field. Timmy strikes out a batter with a splitter in the second. A batter hits straight to Crawford in the sixth. I wonder what we must look like to the people walking in and out of Frosty Factory. So quiet, so still, our heads bent, our faces lit by the bluish glow of my phone. In the seventh inning, Pablo, Kung Fu Panda, Sandoval, catches a ball by third and makes this long-as-hell holy-shit throw to first, protecting Timmy's shot at a no-hitter, making the crowd roar, and Timmy points to Sandoval like they are brothers. This still makes my eyes watery every time I watch it, but in that moment, I'm glad it's too dark for Deuce and Red to notice. Then the count gets to 2-2 in the eighth inning, we're 130 pitches in, Hunter Pence dives for the third out, and Timmy raises his fist. Petco Park, full of Padres fans, is on their feet. Blanco catches the final out in the ninth. Then there's Buster running up to Timmy from behind. It's the first time Timmy smiled the whole game. Okay, okay, Red says. That was legit. Yeah, only because we didn't have to sit through the entire game. Those were all the money shots, Deuce says. Dude, you still don't get the energy of it, what it must feel like to be on that field with dudes who have your back. This, coming from someone who has never played baseball, someone who has historically sucked at all sports. I was forever the last one picked in PE. I never made varsity in high school. That's who my younger brother had to look up to, me. You need to feel the field, I decide, looking at McNeese's baseball diamond across the street. Let's go. We kill what's left of our daiquiris and chuck the styrofoam cups into Deuce's truck. This part of Common Street is four lanes wide going both directions, but we don't cross at the stoplight on the corner. In the dark, we make a break for the other side. Cars honk and we run faster because, one, we are alive. Two, we feel like we're invincible. Three, we are foolish. When Bomber, Deuce, and Red are all together, they do seem like brothers. And when I am with them, men who are all over six feet tall, scrappy men who grew up wakeboarding in the Mermintaw, swimming in ditches, and gunning four-wheelers in the sand down at Rutherford, I am fortified steel. No one can fuck with me. Nothing bleeds. I can't hurt. I wish my brother grew up with men like this. 
I wish he had them instead of me. When the three of us get to the field, I make for the mound and pretend to wind up just like Timmy Lincecum, back curved toward the first baseline, head tilted, my left leg in a long stride, and my right finishing high with a signature kick. Reds at home plate and pretends to bat, then runs to first. There's no way you would have hit that, I say. Timmy's got unhittable pitches. Sometimes I read through online sports forums, looking for glimmers of Timmy, and this old post remains a favorite. Tim Lincecum looks like he's 16 and throws major heat and makes hitters look like little leaguers. Red could probably hit on hittable pitches, Deuce says, running over to home plate, saying what all older siblings say. I taught that kid everything he knows. Did you know Deuce ran over my leg with a lawnmower when I was six? Red yells out from first base. No, I said. Yeah, I taught him how to get hurt and walk away like it was nothing, is what I taught him, Deuce says. I wind up again, and Deuce pretends to miss. Commentators and sports writers marvel at how such force could come from a body that looks like Timmy's. 5'11", hovering between 170 to 180 pounds. They describe his lightning bolt pitches as violence. Those stitches, Red says. Remember how I was screaming my head off because the doctor wouldn't let me lift my head to see? All I wanted was to watch them do it. The freak winds up again, I say, slow motion moving through another pitch. Contrary to what other people think, Timmy has some great nicknames. The Freak, The Franchise, Timmy, Tiny Tim, The Say K Kid. After Deuce hits the invisible pitch, I decide to run to home plate and we do laps around the diamond, Red leading the way. It isn't long before Red passes me up. I want a nickname, I say, trying to catch my breath. Anyone tough has a nickname. It's true. Red, well, they told me he likes going down on girls even when they're on their periods. Bomber used to box and got his name and picture in some of the local papers long before I met him. He's the same height as Joe Lewis, the brown bomber. Deuce is short for the last name, Deucet. They told me Red would have been Little Deuce if someone didn't christen him Red. No one gave my brother a nickname, not even me. Shortstop, Deuce calls out. You're a short motherfucker and you made Bomber's heart stop. We keep running the bases. I can't tell you how long we ran for. Maybe it was until Red's legs gave out and he almost barfed up Eddie's special. Maybe it was until Bomber called to see what we were up to. I don't really remember. What I do remember is that Timmy Lincecum goes on to pitch yet another electrifying no-hitter the following year, and the Giants win the World Series for the third time in four years. But by then, Bomber and I are broken up, and I never see Deuce and Red again. Timmy goes through with season-ending surgery on his hip, and then signs a deal with the Angels, but basically disappears from the majors. Louisiana is no longer my home, but a place I once lived. Timmy isn't a giant anymore, hasn't been for a while, and probably never will be. But still I keep my eyes peeled for traces of him and hope he'll make a comeback like they say he will because of that interview I read long ago. The one about Timmy watching his older brother Sean pitch to their dad in their small backyard in Renton 
this younger brother wanting to be just like his older brother, an older brother who said that Timmy, once a puny no-name freshman at Liberty High, four foot eleven, weighing 85 pounds, this little boy with mountain-crushing hopes, was built like a Greek god. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thank you for being on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I think I'd just like to start with probably a dreaded question, which you can answer as honestly or obliquely as you want, which is, where did this story come from? I was in workshop fall quarter uh, with Adam Johnson, and we're all pretty tight in that workshop. And, you know, we tell stories to each other, um, like from our lives. And I ended up, you know, I ended up sharing that um, my brother actually did uh, take his life and uh, before the school year started and that I had joined this uh, suicide survivors group. And I was sharing it because I was saying that what was helping me cope a lot was um, people in the survivors group just telling their stories. Um, The... Two facilitators, you know, they uh, had been through similar loss. Um, And I just remember that first night, one of the facilitators told the story of how, you know, her loved one um, did it. And she did it without crying or or breaking. She, She was just saying it like it was just matter of fact. And I was bawling and I was like, oh, my God, like, I think. I think something about like telling stories like helps you um, get stronger. And uh, now I'm crying. Um, But I remember um, Adam had said that, you know, that I could, you know, when I felt ready, that I could channel it through fiction as, I mean, as he's done um, with his own work, which is amazing. And I was really, really scared to go there, but honestly, I feel like this sounds like a PSA for the Stegner Fellowship, but I feel like all of my colleagues are, um, like, they make me feel like I can do things that I'm, like, scared of doing. Um, So in Elizabeth's workshop last quarter, I was just, I think the story just came out. Um, It was just one of those things where maybe it just had to get out at that time. Yeah. Am I like the first person to cry on 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 one of these podcasts? <laughs> but hopefully not the last. <laughs> hopefully not the last. <laughs> well, can I ask then, like, what is maybe helpful for you yeah. about writing this as fiction, um, and just maybe in general about the relationship? Because so many writers, of course, draw on their own lives, and yeah. yet and yet present the work as fiction and fictionalize elements and and not as memoir or essay. So what's right. what's useful about that or I um well I guess you know the first thing that comes to mind is you know how the character's brother um you know takes his life in the story is not is not how my brother took his life. Um and something about writing something that wasn't real actually helped it feel a little bit easier almost like it was a way to process and and think about what had happened um, without actually laying it out as it was. Like maybe you can connect to the emotion of an experience more easily than 
if you were concentrating on the exact facts right. as they really happened. Right, exactly. Something I admire about all the work of yours that I've read is how you seem to contain so much within a story. Um, in this piece, there is the relationship with Bomber, the relationship with his roommates, the relationship with baseball, with Timmy. Um, there's um, an inquiry into sort of racial identity and the way uh, Filipino people are sort of perceived by the mainstream and the sort of the pop culture iconography or lack thereof. And I guess my question is just, is this reflective maybe of how your mind works, the sort of associative linking of different pieces or do, are all these things in a story from the beginning or is it a process of revision? I do find myself kind of like jumping around you know, talking about trying to tell some, like, emotional truth versus fact truth. I, I wasn't living in Louisiana um, when, you know, when this happened. Um, but somehow baseball and my time in Louisiana and my brother's death, it was almost like they just started uh, gravitating towards each other as I was typing, you know, um, and trying to, like, put words to what I was feeling. I think there's often that intuitive sense that these three or four or five things belong together in some way, some emotional way, that maybe if you had to defend intellectually, you couldn't, or at least maybe not to a certain point in the revision process, but you know that they speak to one another somehow. I, I do think it, it operates on this subconscious level. I tend not to be a writer that that outlines, you know, that has some sort of structure before I begin a draft. Um, and I'm not I'm not uh, uh, bashing that method or anything. Um, it's just that it I totally do just um, sit and just let let my mind sort of just wander, and then. Yeah, and I guess those things do find each other. I want to ask right. about two things sure, yeah. uh, that I think feature a lot in your work. One yeah. is pop culture and one right. is sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to start with pop culture, um, there's, I'm sh there's a school of writing, I don't know what it's called or who started it, that says, oh, you shouldn't mention names of TV shows, bands, all sorts of things that will mm. quote unquote date your story or, or limit its scope or something. Mm -hmm. I don't share that belief and I assume you don't either and I just love to hear your sort of defense or <laughs> sure. or manifesto for <laughs> including a lot of details from pop culture 90s pop culture in particular yes. that I remember yeah. um and sort of what it what it means to you in your work yeah so I've been thinking about this a lot lately I almost feel like mentioning a show or making a reference to something is maybe the same thing as saying like, oh yeah, when I used to go to grandma's house, you know, and do this thing and you get specific and you name that grandmother, you know, and maybe your relatives know like what, you know, they know because they went to that house too and they know how it was too. And I think by actually getting specific with pop culture references, you know, you may isolate a lot of people 
But I think it's worth taking the risk because you may also unite yourself with a bunch of people who may not be the same color as you or, you know, may not have grown up the same way that you have, but you have this thing in common. But they watch step by step. But they watch step by step. (laughs) And one day when you're in like the Norton anthology, there'll be all these wonderful footnotes at the bottom. It says step by step was a show that aired from da da da. Because that's that's what it's like in 19th century novels. They're full of all these specific references that no one knows or remembers. You need the penguin people to tell you exactly what they are. Yeah. So, sports. Sports. I I admit I I was so interested to hear this narrator talk about how she loves sports but was not a good athlete. Because in my experience, those two things do not go hand in hand. I was picked last in gym class, and I've never been interested in watching sports. Are there keys to writing sports scenes effectively in prose? Are there writers that you turn to or that you would recommend? Um, Ron Carlson was just, well, is here, um, but he just uh, gave a reading a couple weeks ago, and I had asked him about Zandus at second, which was uh, kind of another baseball story, and I think he does it well too. And it's actually cool that you brought this up because I'm kind of toying with what if I could teach like a baseball and fiction course, not coming from a place of this is how you write it, because I'm still figuring out how to do justice to sports, um, particularly baseball. I feel like it must be sort of like writing a sex scene, right? Like you, you want to have like enough specific details, mm-hmm. but you don't want to necessarily get too clinical you want to know what the drama of the moment is what the sort of emotional uh dynamic is yes because you know not everyone is a baseball fan right but i think all human beings can connect to the drama the conflict the tension what's at stake and so yeah i actually think that's that's the key to write it in in that way because i do think there's so much drama in in sports and it's really just about how you capture it, I guess. Yeah. Well, you've almost converted me to this story. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. The last thing I'd like to ask yeah. you is just um, to the extent that, again, that you would like to answer this question, yeah. if you could talk a bit about what you're working on now sure. and, and how this piece maybe fits, fits in. into that. I think I would like to do more stories um, from the voice of uh, this character, um, perhaps around the same moment in time. And I actually think I am working on stories right now or thinking in story mode because I um, I think I'm really scared and intimidated by working on my novel. So yeah, I guess I'm using these as little little vacations. That's that's how they say a collection gets written while you're cheating, <laughs> cheating on your novel. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, that's cool to hear. <laughs> well, Jen, thank you so much for yeah. being here, for sharing a story that is new, a story that is so personal, and for being so real with us. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. Thanks to our lead producer, Jackson Roach, and assistant producers, Alec Glassford, Aparna Verma, Sienna White, Aaron Wu, Kathy Wong, and Adesua Agbenile. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans. 
Thanks to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening. Thank you.